All right, we're ready to begin our study of the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 3, beginning chapter 3. So, Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 3. And we are... Uh, I'll probably start out by addressing one of the questions I had at the last, the, uh, the conclusion of last class about the the image. But uh, as we prepare to begin uh, chapter three, and my goal is because the whole chapter is one event, it's much easier to teach an event at one time. So we'll. We'll see how this goes. But anyhow, let's take a few seconds for a confession of sin, spiritual preparation, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're certainly thankful for the book of Daniel and the lessons that we have to be learned in this book. We see Daniel, we see his three friends, we observe uh, the uh, impact that uh, their testimony has on others. And so, Father, we, we pray that uh, as we study the book that it will have an impact on us. We also pray, Father, for those who are not well. Uh, Scott uh, certainly would be one of them that um, his health would improve and that he would be strong not only for his daily job but also for uh, the weekend that's approaching us. We also pray, Father, for our nation. We're thankful for the blessings that you have given us. We are a blessed nation, and we pray that we would respond to your blessing in a positive way, uh, particularly regarding our uh, marvelous spiritual heritage and uh, our response and daily acknowledgement of who you are uh, and why we are blessed the way we are. Uh, we pray that those who oppose um, biblical principles and uh, the establishment principles that you have uh, designed for mankind, for society, for the human race, and for this nation, we pray that they would be frustrated um, and that uh, those who who are committed to you would be bold and uh, successful in their efforts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, Daniel chapter 3 dovetails very nicely with what was taught last night uh, in Exodus. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, we saw the, uh, the midwives' dilemma. The midwives' dilemma regarding how are they going to respond to a pharaoh that is telling them to do something that is contrary to not only to God's will, but to God's revealed will, his, his commands, uh, what we find in the word of God. And we discussed that in some detail. As a matter of fact, we attacked it categorically. But this morning, and I mentioned this last night, this morning we are in Daniel chapter 3, where we find... Uh, Daniel's three three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, facing a similar problem. It's not exactly the same, but it's a similar problem. We'll see the differences that they encounter, uh, but also how they approach it. Um, But their approach is the same, and that is that they're not going to violate uh, an express command of God. And I mentioned last night that 
uh, I think that for uh, uh, the midwives and for <clears throat> these three individuals and Daniel and maybe others, the commands of uh, the Word of God were had more significance to them than it may today because today <clears throat> uh, very often <clears throat> believers who maybe encounter <clears throat> a difficult situation will simply uh, defer to society instead of the commands of God. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, this, I I really don't mean it. I'll go through the motions or whatever. But without realizing that we really are uh, violating the command of God. And that's the point I was trying to make last night when we read the word, they feared God. Uh, There was a, a realization in their lives that if God said, you can't do this, then you can't do it. And they, they feared God more than they feared man. And we saw the disciples, uh, the apostles, uh, when they were standing in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin said, okay, that's it. You are no longer going to speak these things. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ had told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Beginning in Jerusalem, and Judea and Samaria and then to all the world. And so the Lord had told them that they need to do this. And he said, and lo, I'll be with you. So what had they to fear? And so they determined that it was more appropriate for them to obey God than to obey the Sanhedrin, than to obey men. And so we saw that with the midwives last night. Um, and I, I don't think that I could adequately... Uh, describe or or set that stage for those midwives in front of Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh, as I said, was God. He was an Egyptian god. And who are the midwives? The midwives are not even in his what we might describe his cabinet. They're not on his staff. Uh, and beyond that, they're Hebrews. They are uh, commoners seen as slaves. How in the world do they appear in front of Pharaoh? And if they didn't appear in front of Pharaoh, would it just be, oh well, I'm appearing in front of my boss? No. This guy holds their lives in his hands. And so for them to walk in in front of Pharaoh had to be an extremely traumatic situation for them. And again, I, uh, I don't know that I can adequately explain uh, how that situation would have appeared to them. Uh, but they had to be fearful. But it says they feared God. They feared God greater than they did, more than they feared Pharaoh. And that, that's a remarkable statement. Where's God? Has anybody seen God? No, but you can see Pharaoh. I can see the executioners. I know that in the, the next second they could take my life. You know, They just trusted that, yes, they trusted in their God. 
and they feared him. So we're at the same place here in in Daniel chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar, who has just been told by Daniel that he is a very powerful monarch, that God has placed him on the throne, and that he has the potential to be the monarch for the entire world. The entire Gentile world, and there's no longer an Israel, or the Israel that uh, is, is in existence at this time, probably 600 B.C., is subject to Babylon. And in 586, they're going to be gone. So, uh, he's just been told this. And uh, even though he recognizes Daniel's God as the Most High, he's still not recognizing him as the only God and as his God. So as we begin chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar responding to the events in chapter 2 regarding this image. So let's just read at least the first seven verses to get us started. Nebuchadnezzar... Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. So we have something that's approximately 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And uh, if you can imagine that, I I failed to to get the image that I wanted for this. But that's that's a very high and a very narrow image. So it's not the same image that was probably uh, uh, seen, described in chapter 2, but it's a golden image, or at least overlaid with gold. So um, scholars and theologians go back and forth as to whether this is that image, or a similar image, or a human image, and there's just no way for us to know. But anyhow, it's tall, 90, uh, 90 cubits here, or 90 feet is approximately uh, eight stories high. So it's, it's very tall, but it's also very narrow, uh, or nine feet wide is not very broad. Uh, he set it up in the plains of Dura, in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he's the one that's setting this up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered together for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And he stood before the image, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages that at the time you hear the sound of the horn the flute the harp the lyre and the psalter psaltery in in symphony with all kinds of music you shall fall down and worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. 
So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, uh, you'll notice here repetition that we have in several areas. Number one, this was not an image that someone else, uh, or at least certainly does not appear to be an image, that was the idea of someone else. This is Nebuchadnezzar's idea. He decides that since he has been described as this uh, all-powerful monarch, uh, and that Babylon uh, is going to rule the world, that he is significant in all of this. And he is because he is described as God's servant. But uh, he assumes to himself godlike characteristics. And so that's, of course, where he's wrong. But anyhow, you'll notice that it is something that he's set up. He's set up. He has set up. It's mentioned three times. We also have the repetition of those who are there. And I believe that the, uh, the idea here is that he, they literally have everybody. Uh, this is not just for the officials in and around Babylon. But he establishes this um, image and calls all of these officials from all of the provinces because he is now going to unify his, uh, his empire. And that's the idea here, to get everybody there, to let them understand and to know and to see him, and then have them all bow down to him and worship him. And so that's what he's doing. Now, uh, the location of this, the word Dura in Aramaic is very often translated in, in two different ways. Number one, it's translated sort of as a, uh, an open plain, and then other times it's, it's understood as a sort of a courtyard within a walled area. And here, this does not appear to be uh, something that is inside Babylon. Uh, it would probably be difficult to get all of these people in a certain area uh, in and around Babylon, although uh, the city itself was was quite large, and the wall encircling it encircled a fairly large area. But this is more than likely out on a plain that is, in fact, uh, south of Babylon. South, maybe southeast. This is uh, a picture of the area of, of Babylon around it. Uh, and it's probably to the south and maybe some people think uh, maybe a little bit more to the southeast. And interesting, um, interestingly, there have been archaeologists who have uh, done a lot of work in and around Babylon and also uh, uh, in, the outer, in the outskirts of Babylon. And they have found uh, platforms made of of brick and stone, several of them uh, substantial, with even pedestals on them. Within one of them is within six miles, another one is in twelve miles. That could very easily support 
a huge image like this. And so while we don't know the exact place, we do believe that it's probably in the south, south, um, uh, maybe eastern area here on some of the large plains. It's just interesting that archaeology has found those things. So um, that sort of gets us started here. The satraps, um, I'm going to take a stab at some of these translations in the Aramaic, um, but the satraps were the chief representatives of, of kings. So uh, the rulers that would be there or the chief representatives from that nation, we could say, are the satraps. Uh, the, after the satraps... Um, we have the administrators. Uh, in some Bibles, they're described as the uh, uh, prefects. Uh, they're the military commanders. We have the governors, who would be the civil administrators. Uh, behind that, we have the counselors, or maybe the advisors. Uh, those, again, are uh, um, very senior advisors in governmental authority. Uh, we have the treasurers. Uh, and back then... Um, the treasurer was a very significant individual. They had to be trusted, first of all, uh, to do that job. But secondly, uh, they held very prominent positions. So they were the, those who uh, were responsible for the, uh, the funds of the kingdom. Judges would be the administrators of law. The magistrates probably uh, would be subordinate to them uh, that helped sub- uh, enforce the law. Uh, and then other government officials would be uh, subordinates. And so all the officials of the provinces, and they were to come to this dedication of, of the image. And so that's what we see. And then, of course, we have in verse 4 the, the herald that says, To you it's commanded, uh, O people and languages, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of, the, of these instruments, and there apparently were uh, there was other music playing, but when these specific images began to play, it was at that time that they were to fall down. All of them were to fall down and worship this huge golden image. Now, <clears throat> the the golden image, as I said, as I just described it, it's a very tall but slender image, and um, many it says that it's a golden image, but uh, and. Uh, Babylon is known for its gold, but um, it's difficult to believe that this this would probably be solid gold. It's probably uh, a metal image that is overlaid with gold. Uh, not critical, but I think that that's at least an important uh, point to be made. Uh, you'll notice it says, "And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately." And the uh, Hebrew or the Aramaic here says, "In that hour." So. <clears throat> The idea is that within that hour, or and and it's really in that hour, is uh, uh, an idiom that means immediately, and so the translation immediately is fine. They would be thrown into into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So we're not told. Uh, precisely where this furnace is, whether it's right here beside the image or some distance, but it's probably because that was, excuse me, to be the the punishment for not worshiping. It's probably something that is built very close by. 
Now, from the description of this furnace and some of the furnaces or large open uh, furnaces that they found in the area, the furnace probably has a uh, an opening. It's a, it would be a large structure, something maybe similar to this, that would have uh, an opening at the bottom. But of course, it, it's also open at the top. And from uh, this description of this, and from other furnaces, it's believed that there was, of course an access somehow you know, to get to the top, whether it's a stairway or a ladder or whatever it would be, there's some sort of an access that would allow them to get to the top so that probably it's from the top that the fuel is thrown in, whether it's wood or whatever they're burning. And so the fuel goes in at the top, and then you would be able to observe from the bottom and uh, that's what we think uh, as we go forward we're seeing what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do so uh, there is access somehow they can get to the top but there's also an ability to see within the furnace from the bottom so that's what this what we, what we think we have when we talk about this fiery furnace uh, so it was at the time when we have the noise in verse 7 um, that they played uh, it says that everybody all the people they heard the sound of the horns the flute the, the harp and the, the lyre and they all fell down they fell down and worshipped the golden image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up now verse 8 verse 8 through <clears throat> let me read through verse 18 verse 8 therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the lute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all the kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold, the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Uh, Let me stop there. Let me kind of pick this up. Now, uh, there's... Uh, an interesting we have the translation here in verse 8 that at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews and the word here, the Aramaic word for accuse is something and it's a little bit of a difficult translation but it's regarding to pieces and various scholars think it either means uh, to tear to pieces or to eat the pieces or something of that nature so it's an idiom it has a sense of an idiom and it's the idea that this is a uh, a very slanderous and malicious accusation so they come forward and it's it's not simply uh, an informational uh, 
conversation that they have with Nebuchadnezzar. They come forward in a very malicious way, tearing them to pieces, you know, chewing them up and spitting them out, we might say, uh, in their accusation to Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll notice they say, O king, live forever, and this is not necessarily uh, a show of... Uh, specific deference on their part this is pretty much the way that uh, kings, rulers were approached and addressed at that time but at least they are addressing him that way but I'm just saying I don't know if they're necessarily trying to ingratiate themselves it was a standard approach Uh, and they say that when we went through the, the procedures that you said there were certain Jews in verse 12 whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and they happen to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they haven't paid due regard to what you said. Now, uh, you may remember that Nebuchadnezzar thought enough of these men after Daniel has given the interpret has given the dream and then the interpretation of the dream that uh, he. Uh, acquiesces to Daniel's request that they be given positions uh, in Babylon, that they be rewarded as well. And he is more than happy to do that. But now he is being told that they are uh, rebellious, uh, that they are uh, disobeying contradicting, however we want to see this, uh, what he wants them to do. And uh, for almost any monarch uh, during that period of time, uh, this kind of a disobedience would be uh, seen as uh, worthy of capital punishment. So, uh, the three are accused uh, maliciously, I would say, by uh, these Chaldeans. Now, one of the, the things that is noticeable here is that Daniel uh, is not mentioned. So, is Daniel there? If we have everybody there, is Daniel there? Um, If he is, he's not accused. Um, The arguments for having him there is that if all of the other officials are there, Uh, and we say that Daniel may have been off in another part of the province or he may have been visiting another province, Uh, who would he have been visiting? Uh, No one else would have been there for him to see. So everybody was here. Um, But it's possible that because Daniel is something like number two in the kingdom, that he's, he's not right there. That he may be back in the palace uh, and the king did not make it a requirement for him to be there or it may have even been um, we don't want the number one and the number two uh, uh, rulers at the same place at the same time a lot to a similar situation we generally don't have the president and the vice president traveling together uh, so there are various uh, explanations about why Daniel isn't mentioned here with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And the answer is, we really don't know. Uh, we can make speculation over it, but we simply don't know. 
but the accusation is against these three. So, uh, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true? You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately, within the hour, immediately, into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now, I mentioned that last night we talked, we addressed the uh, midwives' dilemma and the situation in which they found themselves. And I used uh, these three as uh, parallel examples. But the situation is really a little bit different. Because with the midwives, they were called in and told to do something and then dismissed. Now just go do it. And uh, Pharaoh was not going to be with them watching and supervising their actions. And so they probably stood in front of Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, this is what I want you to do. Go do it. And they depart. Uh, there probably is no discussion. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Uh, meaning, I either didn't express myself clearly, uh, or this is very difficult for you to understand. And uh, by the way, in the Middle East, that is, uh, you know, uh, precisely the situation. When we were over in in Desert Storm, working with the uh, the Saudis and other uh, Arab countries we would have a plan and when we were out uh, practicing having exercises on how to execute it but that's uh, alien to a Middle Eastern culture because they'd say well you're out uh, uh, rehearsing it we're not really sure why does that mean you don't expect them to be able to do what you told them to do or that they didn't understand what you told them to do or that your plan may not be a solid, uh, uh, effective plan so you need to try it to see if it works. Inshallah. You know, um, uh, if God wills it, we'll be successful. Uh, and it's, it's really sort of remarkable. Um, it probably took us about... I don't know how many months to kind of figure this out that um, you know we could encourage them to uh, walk through the process with us and, and they would send people and they would do that but essentially uh, it's I said it um, I'm not going to make a mistake they heard it uh, they're not going to make a mistake and so it'll all go well and off we go back to you know our tea and Whatever else we're doing, so what I was, what I'm saying here, and I'm not taking a little bit of a lengthy uh, time to say it, is that there was probably little or no opportunity for the 
midwives to, to, to look at Pharaoh and say, no, we're not going to do it. They simply leave. And so they are, you know, you know they're wise as foxes here. Uh, walking out of the palace, they know they're not going to do this. But they're not confrontational with Pharaoh because, as I said, what would happen if they would like to uh, tell him to go jump in the, in the Nile is it's, well, bring up the next two midwives. And the next two midwives are going to have to go through the same thing. And if they do the same thing, bring up the next two. Uh, and the other two can join the, the dead bodies uh, out here along the Nile from the crocodiles. So they were, they were wise and they trusted God to uh, protect them or to resolve this situation. They knew they were not going to go down to the, uh, the Hebrew women who were giving birth, grab the, the, the baby boys and throw them in the Nile. They're just not going to do it. And they came up with, and the, the Bible doesn't tell us that it was a lie, but it certainly was, uh, 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 we could say dishonest because they knew they weren't going to obey. We don't know if they told none of the midwives to be there when uh, children were born uh, or if they uh, were there and then lied about the fact. The Bible doesn't say and the Bible doesn't elaborate. Uh, and, And I think it's because the important point is that this was a violation of the revealed will of God to murder those children. And so the midwives are simply not going to do it. And then they did tell a story that said, uh, well, they give birth before we arrive. And so we're not there when those children are born, so we can't throw them in the Nile, we can't kill them. Now, who is Pharaoh? Is Pharaoh going to say, oh, yeah, that, yeah, oh, yeah, well, oh, I guess I can see that. I don't think he's that stupid. I think Pharaoh should have known, but for whatever reason, God protects those midwives. Not only does he protect them, but he honors their decision. And part of the way he honors their decision is by removing them from harm. And so Pharaoh, instead of saying, take every one of these midwives out and execute them, and then I want you to go down there and find those children and, and, and throw them in the Nile yourself. No, he doesn't do that. He just says, okay, well, by the way, tells his, through his chain of command, if you see, if you find any of these male children, throw them in the Nile. And now the Bible doesn't elaborate on whether that happens or whether they don't find them or not. We don't know. As a matter of fact, the only male child we know they found is Moses. So... God protected them uh, and their decisions here. And this isn't an opportunity for all of us now uh, to violate legally established authority. It was simply the midwives, like the apostles, say, we have a direct commandment from God. And we're just not, we can't violate it. It's not a matter of, well, we think that's kind of foolish. Or, you know, we really don't like that. You know, we're not water kind of people. No, it's not that they uh, have a preference other than what the boss says. No, it was a clear violation 
of the Word of God. And so this isn't a carte blanche for us to say, I'm not going to do anything that I just don't think I care to do or that I like or that I think is foolish. That's not what's happening here. And it's the same thing for these individuals. But it's different for them because now they're standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar and they don't have an opportunity to say, "Uh, well, okay, Uh, maybe next time. Next time is now. You know, they're going to have to bow down or not bow down right there in front of the king. So it's a bit different. So in verse 16, we see that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. Now, the Hebrew, the Aramaic here is, um, again, sort of an interesting construction. And, and uh, it doesn't come across as them being insubordinate uh, or being flippant. It, they simply are saying, uh, well, king, you know, there, there's no need for us to say anything uh, because our actions are not going to change. Um, they could have said, no, we're not going to do it. And that would have been, you know, again, uh, an affront to the king and embarrassing to the king probably in front of who else was standing there. And so that's not their response. What their response here is that we really don't need to say anything. There's, there's nothing for us to say. That's their point. So they're not being insubordinate, they're not being rude, and they're not being flippant. Because they're saying, essentially, you can play the music, but King, we're not going to bow down. And that's ex- exactly what they express in verse 17. If that's the case, if the case is when you play the music... We have to bow down, if that's the case. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us from your hand. And then they add this in verse 18. But if not... See, their trust, their uh, belief, is that they've been obedient, they fear God... And God will deliver them from this catastrophe, you could say. From this attack. But then they say in verse 18, But but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So they say, even if God doesn't deliver us, this is our... Uh, action anyhow. This is what we're going to do. This is what we believe. So, they show absolute confidence in God, stating that their God is truly greater than Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar now is more or less holding himself up as God, somebody to that uh, to whom they should be worshipping, falling down and worshipping. And they say that the God that they serve is greater than Nebuchadnezzar's God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar should already know this because he had all of the wizards of smart in front of him uh, in the last chapter. And none of them could give him the information he needed. But Daniel's God could, and he recognized that Daniel's God is probably the 
chief of all gods. We don't know how long this is. We don't know the period of time between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Some um, put this uh, much later. Uh, you know, uh, chapter 2 probably happens while Daniel's still in training. We know that Daniel and his friends were taken captive in 605 B.C., so it's probably soon after that that they're back in Babylon and they're going through this training. So it's probably before 600 B.C. that uh, chapter 3 occurs, probably even 604 for all we all we know is we're going down the uh, the uh, the ages there, um, and for those who say that this could have happened much later, maybe as far as just before uh, Israel falls, Jerusalem falls, maybe 587. Uh, that seems like that's a little bit of a lengthy period of time, but it doesn't appear that this happens immediately afterwards. So there's time here for Nebuchadnezzar to. Who, who doesn't believe at that time to move further back into his pagan environment, his pagan beliefs. And so what he should have known, he has forgotten. Uh, but these three recognize that their God is not only the only God, but he's superior to any other God that anybody could ever create out here uh, or any of these images. But their God has demanded explicit obedience to him. And uh, we know uh, these three individuals do have uh, the Ten Commandments. And they're not to bow down to any other God. That You'll have no other God before me. Uh, so they have uh, explicit uh, commands to obey. And so they're going to obey them. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now we've already seen him, that he was very angry. Um, in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury, my new King James. I think that's a, what we call hendiades. It means that the two words really express one idea or thought, and it means that he was truly furious. He was full of rage, as we have it described here. But he was angry because they didn't do it. They, did, they didn't obey. Now he's probably furious at them personally. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and he commands that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. I mean, how hot does it have to be to kill these uh, three, three people? Um, the hotter the furnace, actually, the less painful it's going to be, the quicker the death is going to be. So it's sort of interesting when he, he gets this angry with them. Um, Verse 20, And he commanded mighty men of valor, Chile here, uh, who were in his army, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men, then these men, those three, were bound in their coats. So uh, they're, they're not even going to take off 
their outer wear. Um, and several uh, historians have commented on this, that um, generally speaking, uh, they would immediately be stripped of their clothes and bound and thrown in naked. That was normally the way they did it. But here, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is so angry and so uh, rabid about this that they don't even go through what would be considered the normal procedures. They just, yes, the king is irate. Don't worry about the uh, the normal procedures here. Just bind them quickly. Let's get them up to the top of the furnace. Uh, stoke the furnace as hot as we can, and we'll throw them in. Therefore, verse 22, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these valiant men, um, in their haste and in their uh, urgency, as the text says, to get these three men up and into the fire, they rush them up there, and as they're apparently getting them close to the uh, to the top to the opening that the fire is raging and it kills the the men these brave men who are being very obedient to Nebuchadnezzar it kills them uh, we could say as well but of course as we read on we see it doesn't kill Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and these three men Shadrach Meshach and Abednego fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace so uh, we don't know the size of this furnace it could have been fairly uh, large we don't know Uh, but you'd think if they're bound hand and foot and they're tossed into the top of a furnace that even the fall would kill them on the fiery furnace but it says uh, they fell down bound into the midst of the fiery furnace so here we have uh, verse 23 describing uh, what's happening so uh, from verse 23 uh, verse 24 then we see the response here of Nebuchadnezzar then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished you know see he is He's previously been, I believe we could say, astonished, surprised, impressed by uh, Daniel and and those three men when they did something that no one else could do. And that was tell them his dream without him telling anything to anyone and then tell him what the dream meant. So here he is again, enraged at these three. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And he's once more astonished. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Uh, Of course, we're not told specifically that this is the Son of God. And uh, the way that he says this, he identifies him as the Son of the Gods. Uh, It could be the Son of Gods, plural. The uh, description here, Elohim, can either be taken singularly or plural. But... uh, 
he he later will he will later say that they were protected by an angel, and so uh, a son of God, an angel, uh, you know. More than likely, Nebuchadnezzar isn't saying, I looked in there and I saw the pre-incarnate Son of God. That's not who he's, he believes he's seeing. But he's seeing a fourth person. And he's saying it appears to him to be somebody uh, beyond human. We would say has a divine appearance. And that's what he says. Uh, the fourth is like um, the Son of God's. Um, that's very impressive. So, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is somehow in a position where he can see into the furnace. And um, we're we're not told that there were anybody else that had not bowed down, so he is in a position uh, where he can normally see this happening. I have uh, my senses that even if no one else bowed down, and I can't imagine anyone else in that group not bowing down they probably weren't thrown into the fire Uh, no one else was thrown into the fire and even if they did he probably wouldn't have cared he probably wouldn't have been over there but for these three he does he goes over or at least God positions him there so that he can see this remarkable event truly a miracle Uh, three men thrown into uh, a furnace not only a furnace that is burning hot but it's burning exceedingly hot and the miracle is not only that they survive, how in the world would they survive, but there are four images in the furnace. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. Verse 27, and the satraps, the administrators, here we go, we're going to go through this list. Governors and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of the fire was not on them. Uh, You know, this is... The remarkable thing about God's miracles is that they're not progressive in nature. Um, they're they're complete. They're absolutely uh, a miracle in the final details. Uh, the miracles that the Lord uh, performs uh, in the Gospels and that uh, the apostles uh, perform. Uh, someone who can't walk. They're not healed, and now they have to learn how to walk. They're not healed, and their muscles have atrophied over all these years. Uh, they're not lepers who are healed, and their skin is uh, disfigured, or there's still blemishes there. Uh, someone who couldn't hear, uh, cannot hear just out of maybe one ear, still kind of deaf in one. Or maybe they can hear, but they can't really hear as well as someone who, uh, someone's normal hearing. So we see that the miracles are just astounding. And so I mentioned that they normally tore off their clothes and threw them in the, uh, in the furnace. Well, part of the miracle here is that while the ropes, the bindings, burn off their hands, the clothes that they were wearing are not burned. They're not singed, as we would say. Not only that, but their hair 
is in sin. You know, I would imagine that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been just as happy to wander out of that furnace, having their clothes burned, hair singed off, but still be alive. But that's not God's miracle. God's miracle is, it's as if you had not been in the fire. Not only that, but they just walked out of the fire, and their clothes don't even smell the fire. And we all know what that's like. Uh, I remember from uh, you know, growing up on the farm, we very often would have bonfires, burning wood, burning leaves, whatever we were going to do. And we'd come into the house, and Mother'd say, "Oh, boy, you know, you, you really smell of burning, of smoke. It's just." Natural, And, of course, if we sit around a fireplace, it's the same way. They come out of this huge burning furnace. They don't even smell of fire. And so um, this is the power of God. He doesn't just save them, <laughs> which would be astounding enough. But, you know, God the Holy Spirit reveals to us here, the, all of these officials gather around him and they say, they don't even smell a smoke. You know. So, uh, to me, the small things are incredible here as well. So verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, <clears throat> saying to them, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's words and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego excuse me, shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the provinces of Babylon. So, uh, you know, the extraordinary thing that we have here is that um, Nebuchadnezzar is back to approximately the same position he was at the end of verse 2. And that is he recognizes that this is the Most High God. These are the actions of the Most High God. And the Most High God is superior to any other gods. And so in probably uh, a, uh, an instant here of not only astonishment, but uh, maybe even great emotion, he decides to decree that uh, anyone who says anything against their God um, will be cut in pieces. And remember the word that we had, the Aramaic word that we had that was describing him, these um, officials, these Chaldeans, that slandered them. The, the uh, Arabic word is either ripped them to pieces or chewed them up, whatever it is. But, but the word pieces is there. And so at the end of this, we say, he says, anybody that wants to rip them apart is going to be ripped apart. That's the king's pronouncement here. And their houses shall be made an ash heap because there's no other God who can deliver like this. 
and he's absolutely correct. He correctly identifies this. But Nebuchadnezzar is still a very arrogant individual. He's very proud of who he is. And I don't believe that we see him converted yet. We're not going to see him converted until God completely humiliates him um, in a later chapter. And then he says, then the king promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, uh, you know, the lesson here is, has somewhat to do with the prayer that I prayed to begin the class, is that those who maliciously attacked these three men wanted them dead, wanted them gone, wanted them out of the chain of command. They're Hebrews, you know, for goodness sakes. Uh, they're foreigners. They should be slaves, not ruling us. And so their effort is to have them removed, killed, exterminated. But God protects them because, not just because they're Hebrews, but because they fear God. And not only did they fear God, but they were willing to give their testimony, to say that, no, uh, there is only one God. It's the God that we serve. That's the God we worship. We're not going to worship or bow down to any other God. And so what does God do? He not only uh, protects them like he does the midwives, but he honors them and he promotes them. And it says here in verse 30 that... uh, Well, it doesn't, what I was thinking here is that the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That would be the exact opposite that, that, his accus- that their accusers would want. So they're, they're frustrated in their efforts and what they're trying to do. Um, they wanted them gone. They get promoted. Um, so this is uh, the kind of God that we serve. Um, who uh, demands that we fear him instead of men. And, you know, again, my prayer is that those today who uh, find themselves in the same position of attacking uh, the, the historical roots of the United States, our spiritual heritage, uh, the spiritual principles upon which we were founded, and the open uh, ability of us to worship and to proclaim our God and to have our testimony. Those who desire that this be removed, that, that they would be frustrated and that we would have a resurgence of uh, our spiritual uh, our spiritual heritage and uh, the spiritual role that belongs uh, uh, center stage in the United States because that's where it belongs. And we need to honor God because that's who has blessed us and has given us our freedom and provided for us. And I believe that he will. So, Daniel chapter 3. A tremendous chapter, and I believe a tremendous uh, testimony and witness to us that says we need not fear. We need not uh, go along with society. We need not uh, bend Uh, and go with the flow, so to speak. But we can be bold in our beliefs, and God will provide for us. 
Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Dan, uh, Daniel here for his uh, for these three men, uh, Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego were thankful for their courage. Uh, they didn't have the opportunity to simply walk away, and uh, but uh, they were standing right in front of the king. And you demonstrated that you are certainly greater than any king, and Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king uh, in history at that time. Uh, and so, Father, we're thankful for this, uh, you know, this witness to us. Uh, the testimony of of your word help us to be bold help us to be confident help us to trust in you and father uh, help us to believe that you will provide for us and that you will provide for this nation that you will defend this nation that uh, it's not a fait accompli that we are to be found in the dustbin of history in the not too distant future so we ask father specifically for the frustration of those who uh are an anathema to you and who are truly uh, contradicting and uh, opposed to the spiritual heritage that we know this nation has. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.